Hello, and welcome to UK Life Abroad. My name is Andre, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Yusten, Nathan, and Alexa. In the world of aviation, the name Antonov is recognized for its technical achievements. However, its famous media has put Ukraine in the public spotlight for decades. This week, we take a look at the company, its history, its founder, and the details of its famous world record-holding aircraft, Mrio. This and more on Sakhredonia Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. So around the world, Ukraine has a number of different iconic symbols and different achievements that the country and its people are well known for. And for those in Australia who remember back in 2016, the world's largest plane, Mria, uh, landed in Australia and it was a massive, massive deal uh, given the fact that not just it's the world's largest plane, but it's also a Ukrainsky plane. Uh, run by an Ukrainsky state-based company. So, today we thought we would take a look into the maker of this plane, uh, Maria, which is Antonov, and its contribution not just to aviation, but also uh, within Ukraine as well. So, I think, well, as I mentioned, Maria, but also there has a second, another massive plane called Ruslan as well. And these are both owned by... Uh, the Antonov company, which is a state-based a state-based company, and it falls under the umbrella of something called Ukrombromprom. Which I love is, Ukrainian abbreviations know, for state companies. That took a lot of practice to try and get that right. Um, which is basically their conglomerate um, for the defense industry over in Ukraine. So they're mostly known, Antonov is mostly known for its uh, aircraft manufacturing as well as uh, other forms of aerospace-related um, products. Do you know what else they make, Nathan? On the what side, is that? Their side hustle. Have a guess what Antonov's side hustle is in Ukraine. Um... Is it military related? No. Huh. I oh tech? No. Vaguely. Vaguely. Gaming? No. <laughs> oh, okay. So their side hustle is building trams and trolley buses. Oh, okay. What's yeah, that, that makes other sense. company that we talked about that had the Kharkiv tractor factory that makes tanks? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Side hustle tanks. <laughs> well, and makes- also makes uh, you know, highly specialized vehicles for Antarctic exploration in the sixties and seventies. <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> which which maybe leads more from tanks than tractors, but you never know. Well it does make sense though, because the founder, um, Oleg Antonov, he was known for only making either passenger planes or uh, transport planes instead of military planes during the Soviet Union. But, uh, Yusten, can you dive a little more into these famous planes that Antonov has made? Yeah, for sure. I, I think as well it's worth pointing out, obviously it is a company that existed under the Soviet Union, um, but it's always been based in Ukraine. Its majority of its production has been based in the Ukrainian territories employing Ukrainians. So I think, um, and it is one of the companies that I think, as as we're talking about, really did become a, a key player in terms of Ukraine's independence, post-independence, I guess, building of industry and trying to um, yeah, leverage some of the experience they have with these sort of things. So Antonov actually is one of very few companies, aerospace companies in, in the world that really have any experience with heavy lift, um, building heavy lift aircraft. And I think really be beyond um, a few players in the U.S., their specialization is is recognized around the world. So the the Maria plane, I think if, if anyone has never seen it before, is if you could imagine a really big military cargo plane, 
or a cargo style plane. Like the Hercules. Like the Hercules or the ones you see in movies where paratroopers jump out of it. <clears throat> Double the size. Put three engines on each side like you're <laughs> pretending to Photoshop it um, and make a very, very strange wing. And that's probably what you're going to get. It's an amazingly uh, – the, the wings are, are really thick, huge, heavy. Um, the front of it opens up the, as a mouth to gobble up special lifts and loads and different cargo. Um, but what's very interesting about it, and this is, I think, uh, particularly because a lot of people understand that it came from the Antonov-124, the Ruslan, which was actually a strategic military lifter, so you could take military tanks and cargo to different places. The Antonov-225 was never designed for that purpose and never can actually fulfill that purpose because really it actually needs huge runways that need to be paved. It can't go on short military like adventures and kind of land wherever it wants. It's, it's a very specialized plane and because of its size, it really needs to be uh, land somewhere where there's the correct support for it. Um, and I guess the reason why it was built in this manner, still from a Soviet military perspective, but not for airlifting troops and things like that, was it was actually built in conjunction with the uh, Soviet space program and the Soviet space shuttle. Um, which, again, looks very much like the American space shuttle, save for being <laughs> slightly bigger. They did um, copy and paste like 80% of the yeah. design. Well, it was- it's like Konkordsky, really. I mean, yeah. it's, it's 80% copy and paste. Probably a little <laughs> bit safer than Konkordsky and actually achieved, not to go on the side tangent, but achieved some crazy things that the space shuttle never did on the US side. Yeah. Like it actually fully automated. Yeah, it could land itself. could land and orbit itself without anything, and this is in the 1980s. But, yeah, so in 1988, this plane this plane was laid down in the early 80s. It was uh, first flight was in 1988, and it was basically designed to lift um, the the uh, Varan space shuttle on its back, just the same way as you've probably seen the 747 that the Americans had that lifted the American space shuttle and transport it from place to place because, as we, as you may or may not know, these space shuttles, while they can get on the back of a rocket and be strapped and take it into space, they actually don't have engines um, or have very limited lift engine capability themselves. So they can't fly around. So they have to be lifted around. What I love is that the only modern plane that is now bigger than Maria is the one built by Virgin Galactic, I'm pretty sure, is the Starro launch. Yeah, but that's the longest wingspan from memory. That's why it's bigger. Yes. Because it's definitely by volume, it's nowhere near. Yeah, it's nowhere near because they put the little rocket capsule in between the two kind of planes. Yeah, and good news, Starship 2, I think it's still Starship 2, actually did its first full end-to-end launch from a long time, so the full proof of concept. So those people who have lots of money can maybe start booking their tickets with Richard Branson to go to space. (laughs) Or these suborderable. We'll team up, eh? We'll do the first half of the flight. Yeah, Yeah. sure. Um, And look, both these planes, the Antonov 124, which is obviously a lot more numerous around the world and been licensed, obviously exists in a lot of militaries, including the Russian and Ukrainian militaries, but also has been um, sold to other countries and is also been licensed by countries like China to do modern, modern versions of it. It's a highly successful plane for cargo and airlift. And obviously this Maria as well have been really instrumental in terms of doing a lot of, uh, I guess, consignment business around lifting things. And especially during COVID, they've also been used to deliver supplies and um, and medical assistance and things to different countries um, and transport the, the logistics, uh, help with the logistics of COVID and the COVID vaccines. And I think... Like building off your COVID story, because um, just before COVID hit, Ukraine was granted that enhanced NATO partner status, and Ukraine was able to show off how capable it was with its strategic airlifts using the Ruslans and Maria 
to bring COVID supplies around Europe and America. Mm. And so it was kind of good, like, soft power for Ukraine because you'd have these giant, like, cargo planes landing with COVID supplies. Yeah, and look, it's really quite amazing. I mean, the, the, you can definitely look at it if you want to re- if you want to just search Antonov 225 into YouTube. You'll find a whole host of crazy documentaries of just how complicated it is to, like, actually, you know, load it up. And what, they, what it's lifted. Like, it's lifted yeah. a whole, like, power plant. Like engine stations. Yeah, I saw yeah, that. It's wind turbines, the works, you know. So, yeah. Sorry, yeah, I, I watched that documentary where they were um, shipping something. I'm pretty sure it was from Chile to Bolivia or someplace to Bolivia. And it was these tanks needed for, I think, I believe it was a nuclear power plant. And there were six tanks and they had to be shipped in two different sections each. So, 12 trips all up. And yeah, just they need a whole day just for loading. They have to build customized tracks to get these tanks will get the cargo into it um and then yeah it was absolutely insane how much work just goes into this one um aircraft but then what's cool as well is that maria and the ruslan planes can kneel yeah so they can lower the front of the plane down to make loading even easier and and actually with those heavy loads that's the only way you could possibly do it because it's too heavy um, the way they even reinforce the ramp that they put it on is just insane. There's a lot of work there. <laughs> yep. um, I mean, just to give some people the idea of just like how much weight we're talking about. So um, the maximum weight, it can actually, like a gross weight of the whole thing can be basically up to 660 short tons. Um, and if you think about, I guess, the size and the weight of the, the aircraft, it's actually heavier than the double deck A380 if anyone's flown on that. So it's a even though it may not seem like it's as big, it's bigger inside internally as well. Um, and it is actually, I think Alexa mentioned, obviously the longest, longest wingspan. Um, the only other plane that even eclipses that wingspan was the old Hughes uh, H4 Hercules. So anyone knows about Howard Hughes or ever watched the aviator back in the yeah. day? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. With uh, some flew. of the, yeah. So that's how, how big we're talking. Um, it's, it's a very, very big plane. Um, interestingly enough, there's only one operating, there's only one operational copy of this. Obviously, it was built initially for the requirement of a hu- imagining a Soviet space program with lots of space shuttles and transporting lots of space shuttles. In the end, uh, it was built as one. It really just did that role for a few years before the collapse of the Soviet Union. Good thing um, Ukraine got it when it collapsed. <clears throat> and yeah, for Ukraine. But it actually studied mothballs for about eight years doing nothing um, until someone entrepreneurial and Antonov decided maybe we could start using this plane for commercial cargo lifting and things like that. Um, and part of that, I guess, the, that story is that there was always a second airframe that was half completed, or actually not even half completed, but at a structural level was relatively completed with no avionics, nothing, no, no wiring installed. And for many, many years, there's been this idea that because it's been quite successful, because the 225 basically is this unique airplane that can is the one airplane that can do certain jobs, there was this idea to always build up the second airframe to a new new version of the plane, like we'll create another another copy of like another uh, model of the plane. And unfortunately, whether that's been in 2008, whether that's been as, as recently as 2016 with the China, uh, an agreement with the Chinese company in Hong Kong, these things never seem to really get off the ground in the way that they possibly could. I know during Zelensky's recent annual press conference, you could see um, the, f- the fuselage of the second Maria like in the background and he was using it to like try and prove a point of what Ukraine could become if they um had the money to invest in it and it'd be cool if they could finish it but um there's a lot to do like it's only the middle fuselage like it doesn't have any wings yet 
or anything, but, you know, if I someone think, invested think, the money. Yeah, I know. It would be so much better. But I think it would be even better having a modern-day version, given the fact that the old one primarily runs on analog systems back from the 80s, like even to the point where out of the six crew or whatever it is that they need, they still need the navigator. So for people who remember, like, the 80s movies on planes and stuff, you always had the three people in the cockpit and there was always the uh, navigator behind. Well, now everything's digital and electronic, so they only need uh, pilot and co-pilot. Well, they still operate with a navigator because they're still using those old systems. So having a um, a modern version of Maria, I think, would definitely be better because then you could you know, um, put in those new systems. I feel like it's going to be one of those things in typical Ukrainian fashion until the current Maria is no longer airworthy. I feel like the second one won't be finished. Yeah, I know. But even in that documentary where they were shipping those goods to Bolivia, they have a crew on board that basically has to go around and fix something every now and then, like the door didn't work. So they had to actually re- um, uh, rewire and repair the door because like things are going to break down slowly and slowly. So can I just give you a few stats? Because I just think yes. some of these are amazing. So <laughs> the heaviest single item ever sent by air freight was with the AM-225 and it was in 11th of August, 2009. And it basically measured um, 16.23 metres long, 4.27 metres wide and was basically a gas power plant. Uh, like a single gas power plant, like self-contained, and it was a record of 189 tonnes. Is that the one to Armenia? It was, yeah. And then you've also got the longest piece of air cargo, which you mentioned earlier, is wind turbines, and one was 42 metres. The plane itself, I mean, basically measures 80... It's just over 88 metres, right? So it's almost like, if you can imagine a, f- a football pitch, or a soccer <laughs> pitch, it's basically that length. It's quite incredible. So I think we should move on to who is Oleg Antonov. So he was born in 1906 in the district of Moscow, and he was born to a family of civil engineers. Owing to his father's engineering library, the future aircraft designer was familiar with mechanisms and calculations from his early years. Later on in his life, in 1923, he was active in the Saratov branch of the Air Fleet French Society, and here he started constructing and designing his own gliders. Here he designed the Dove, or the OKA-1 a Golub, which was awarded for, uh, with a diploma for original design at the second all-union gliding test in Crimea. He also wrote uh, his first papers on why we need gliders and the paper models of the simplest glider were published. So starting off small, basically, and then building your way up to the largest plane in the world. <laughs> in the world. Yeah, well, he had quite a fascination for gliders and a lot of early planning was dealt with gliders and um, later on, we'll mention some funny gliders that he's come up, that he's <laughs> made up, really. Hmm. So during um, so during 1943 to 1945, Antonov was then posted as, as the deputy chief designer, and he took part in the development of the light and most maneuverable Soviet fighter of the Second World War, the Yak-3. After the war, he became head of his own aircraft design bureau in Novosibirsk in Russia, uh, before later moving on to Kiev, and here he designed the first plane, the SHA or the Agricultural Plane, and it took off on August 31st, 1937. And in 1938, the airplane was launched in serious production and under the designation of AN2. And this plane is the only biplane in the world which has been continuously manufactured and still remains in mass operation to these days. So that's quite surprising that over 50 years, 
that it's still being manufactured even though there's modifications or variations to it. You know yeah. how many were built as well? It's kind of crazy. A couple of thousand? 18,000. 18, geez, okay. Plus, it doesn't even tell you. <laughs> and apparently some uh, series production continues in China as well as the Shijahang Y5. Well, I know Ukraine's made a modernized version. It's the AN2-100, yeah. which is made entirely within Ukraine. Which is and so it looks like that aircraft design still has a long future ahead of it. And look, I mean, and that sounds a bit strange. It's not something contained to like post-Soviet states. Like there are highly successful Cessnas and those sort of designs in the prop world of of airplanes that have basically, yeah, the airframe hasn't changed in the same amount of time. It's just something that you know comes. And really, when we think about it, like okay, yes, there's a lot of new planes, but. A lot of airframes have lasted a long time. If you think how long the 747's been around or even the 737, um, it, it approaches this amount, uh, that kind of amount. One thing I found interesting was that this um, A2 had the top and bottom wings. Yeah. Um, but then, yeah. yeah, but then afterwards, all of his models, or basically all his models, ditched that bottom wing and all of the wings go across the top of the plane. Which um, I think is a very unique design. Like, no other air plane design really does the wings across the top only in situations well light aircraft some of them do but it's more like in heavy aircraft yeah they some of them do but it is it is something that seems to be pioneered quite a bit by Antonov because like, even their like regional passenger jets that Antonov does they keep the wing design mm-hmm. across the top and so I think it helps landing in more rougher airfields across the former Soviet Union because then nothing can really damage the engine. So that's actually called a shoulder wing or a high wing. So the idea is that the wing sits at the shoulder of the top, not the shoulder of the pilot, but the shoulder of the actual plane. Um, and in smaller aircraft, so you do see it in like the smaller Cessnas and things like that. It's basically um, a little bit of a better way to, to run those sort of planes uh, because of their size. But with the heavy aircraft, it actually doesn't make too much of a difference, which is why a lot of our commercial planes will have the normal middle wing that you see at the bottom. But the reason why cargo planes and these heavy lift planes have the high wing primarily is because that means that the fuselage can be lower to the ground and the gear can be shorter, and therefore you can get heavy cargo on and off a little bit easier. So that's why I guess because Antonov has had such a huge pedigree in terms of that kind of style um, and then the lighter ones, I guess they understand how to build that kind of fuselage strong. It is probably something that's quite, um, you know, quite consistent in Antonov's design. Makes sense given the need for like those transport aircrafts carrying such heavy machinery or whatever other cargo they have. Mm-hmm. Like Nathan mentioned earlier, Antonov uh, was primarily focused on the development of and construction of military transport, cargo, and passenger planes, also including multi-purpose aeroplanes. So in the 1960 to 1965, uh, the AN-22 Antti, or Antheus, the world's first super-heavy wide-body transport uh, aeroplane was developed, and this plane set 41 world aviation records. Um, Before Antonov passed away, the last air plane developed under his guidance was the AN-124 Thurslan, which is the world's largest production military transport airplane designed to to carry 150 tons of cargo. Which one was that? The Ruslan. Oh, yeah. So I've got another fun fact that we can talk about. And it's probably the most random world record that I don't think anyone's going to go out of their way to break. And that is in 2012, the Mrio or Antonov 225 
set the world record for highest art exhibition in the world. <laughs> so it was part of the annual air show that takes place in Kyiv and included 500 works of art along with the art gallery's viewers being flown up to a height of 33,300 feet above sea level. All right. <laughs> well, considering yeah. that he was an avid painter, I'm pretty sure he'd be happy to have this. <laughs> sure. But see, this sentence I read in, a, in an article now makes sense where it said that uh, the AN-225 Maria is the owner of 250 uh, world aviation records. So now it makes sense if you're doing like highest art gallery and whatever <laughs> other things they're putting in there. So yeah, 250 though is pretty impressive. Yeah, but I'm like, what an experience! Like you go on, like you go to the air show, and then they're like, "Oh, you want to see this art exhibition? Like, get on board, guys! Let's go up for a spin." <laughs> oh yeah, as you do. <clears throat> um, so going back to some other fun designs that Antonov has been involved with. So, of course, since the company was founded during the Cold War. Um, it took part in some random Cold War experiments. And in the 1960s, when the Antonov AN-22 military transport plane was created, the Soviets tasked Antonov to make a nuclear-powered version of the plane. <laughs> Quite seems, dangerous. Seems safe, I was going to say. So <laughs> Antonov, he made a, he made, he sketched out a design. However, Antonov never went on to flight test it. However, another Soviet company, um, Tupolev, eventually went on to make a nuclear-powered aircraft, and there's rumor that it flew about 40 times. Yeah, but you're not scary about these planes, because the US did this too. Yeah, Let's so the US no has the Covenant NB-36H, which was yeah. experimental, however, it only flew a couple of times, and yeah. they could never figure out how to do the radiation shielding. Well, that's one thing. So, the, <laughs> that obviously, it, uh, to ha- the problem with shielding nuclear reactors is the weight, which yeah. is fine when you're buoyant in a submarine, not so great when you're Yeah, in the I was going to say. And I guess the other part of it is that so the pilots were getting radia- irradiated as they were flying, but also someone decided that maybe hopefully the powers of be I assume this is why we don't see them <laughs> decided that you know the idea that one of these was to crash in urban areas would probably not be a good thing <laughs> so well do you know there are missing like nuclear bombs in America I know there's one story of a plane that there's one near Spain missing isn't there yeah the plane crashed somewhere it was like Georgia or somewhere down south they crashed in a swamp and they weren't ever able to recover it mm. so there's like a missing nuke somewhere in America yeah. and look I should clarify because people say yeah, like that, that is scary too yes but, a, but like a nuclear weapon is a relatively contained amount of radioactive material <laughs> in a pit <laughs> where, to where we talk about like fuel rods it's like basically a flying Chernobyl you know? <laughs> and what's scary Scary, even sorry, not to go down the track, but what's actually scary is that some of these designs actually were called were doing open cycle, where the <laughs> nuclear the nuclear reactor was heating steam and pushing out jet propulsion, like oh. basically, so the propulsion <laughs> itself was irradiating the sky while you were flying like a crop duster. <laughs> it's yeah, I don't know. They should have just got an extension cables from like the power plant as they're flying. Um, but the other more famous design from Antonov is the AN-40 uh, called the Krela Tanka or the Wing Tank, which was a Soviet design from World War II. And the whole aim was to, because at the time it was quite difficult to move tanks around if there was no rail transport or like the roads were poor. And flying them by aeroplane proved to be quite difficult because the plane would have to dive down to 
a few meters above the ground to drop the tank without damaging them. So what Antonov came up with was a basically a winged tank. And if you look at the photos, it looks ridiculous because it's a tank just plopped onto a, a biplane design. And the what the aim was is that it would be pulled behind an aircraft and released as a normal glider and then glide down to the battlefield. And all you'd have to do is disattach, detach the wings and the tank would be ready to go. And the only thing that held it back was that they didn't have a plane powerful enough to pull it on a consistent <laughs> basis. So it, they've la- they launched it once. It worked. It was a T-60 tank that flew and they had to lighten it considerably. Wasn't it from seven tons to two tons? Uh, yes, like they that? took off a lot of the armaments and took out most of the fuel and weaponry. I mean, yeah. And it took off, flew for a little bit, glided and landed, and was able to drive back to the starting airfield as, like, a proof of concept. See, I feel like at that point, you're sacrificing, like, the main components of a tank. No, no, this was a proof of concept model. I know, but even, like, at the point where they had to lighten it. No, no, so if they wanted to use a full tank, they didn't have an aircraft strong enough to pull it up. Oh, so now, like, in the 80s when they made Maria or whatever, then they could have, well, not that strong, (laughs) but something along those lines. Yeah, so I think they could do it today with today's aircraft, but just back then the aircraft was I feel like this is something you see in, like, Halo, where they, like, get really close with the tanks and drop them off and then fly off. (laughs) Well, like, the um, Germany and Britain did it as well, but... they had considerably lighter tanks, and I think they were a lot smaller. I think it was only two-man tanks that they dropped. Mm. So, yeah. So, those are the two probably funkiest designs, and then probably the most oh, uh, most relevant Antonov plane from the news would be the AN-178, which has made headlines in Ukraine for, firstly, um, it is the first time in modern Ukrainian history that the Ukrainian army has ordered a Ukrainian plane. So Ukraine's air force has ordered three AN-178 to add to its transport fleet because of the recent air disasters, which we've covered on our Instagram and Facebook. And this plane has also now been sold to Peru. So the Ministry of Interior has ordered one plane. So there's hope that it might become, at least on a small scale, a global player. Hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, although we've talked about how many times they've tried to maybe convert some of their planes to passenger use, the bigger planes, and the times they've tried to, I guess, re- restart production on the things like the 225, it's also worth noting there is quite successful um, kind of, I guess, regional class jet airliners that they have built and they've used it in other countries, including Ukraine. The 148 and the 158 was something that's really a 21st century plane, had its first flight in 04. Uh, sits seats about sixty eight to a hundred people, depending on which which model, which configuration. Um, but it is quite a successful uh, jet aircraft. And again, the distinction that you'll see to know it's Nantinov is that unlike a normal jet, it looks like a normal jet, but the wings are actually on the top shoulder, <laughs> not on the middle of the fuselage. Yeah. However, I think the one five eight and the one four eight will probably will struggle to be replicated because it was a joint venture with Russia. And since 2014, Antonov has suspended all cooperation with Russia due to the war. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So they have to, and this is the problem with the 178, is parts of it was reliant on Russian technology. So what they had to do is basically go back to their test plane 
identify every piece of technology that was from Russia and then either find the Ukrainian substitute or buy technology from Boeing or any of the other big air companies, mm-hmm. which they've only been able to wrap up in late 2020. Oh, okay. well, luckily, the engines were still Ukrainian, so. Yeah. Yeah, true. Motosich. Has anyone flown on the Motosich? Pure it's Motosich It's on plane? my bucket list of airlines to go on, <laughs> just from your story. Just from my story? <laughs> okay. Well, it's a very unique experience. Please share. <laughs> Okay, so it was one look, and this is not this is not necessarily unique to Motorsage, but it was one of the experience where you sort of get to board the plane from the from the ground, which is always nice. But um, the, basically, the plane was quite small. It has it's kind of got the, the proportions seem a bit funny. That's the light Motorsage aircraft I went on because basically the the back wheels are near the wing, but the wing is quite forward on the plane. So there's quite a long tail that sits oh. out. So you've got three legs at the sort of the front half of the plane, and then you've got the back, right? And as you're getting on the plane, you you're embarking onto the plane from the rear door, not from the. There's no door at the front, oh. so everyone has to go one at a time because if everyone got on at the same time, the plane would actually tip down and fall <laughs> onto its onto its keel or at the bottom of the fuselage. So that was the first bit, and then flying it, it was quite loud. It was a bit of an older motor sitch uh, experience. But yeah, if anyone has an opportunity. Lviv to Kiev. <laughs> I'm sure it's daily, but it's... Uh... Yeah, it was. I almost got to fly on it when I landed in Ukraine to begin my six-month semester at Mohodyanka. And due to my like a mix-up with what the uni told me and how I'd booked my tickets, um, I had to then fly on to Lviv. Otherwise, my ticket would be suspended. And um, I had to find a flight back and there was a motor sitch flight that evening to get back, but it was booked out. So I missed out the experience of flying. And so I only got to go on the usual like Ukraine International Airlines yeah. plane. Look, I mean, I'm sure they're, they're more modern these days too. I was probably lucking out. The, the- no, they've still got plenty of old Antonovs flying. Yeah. But um, but the the motor and I should put out on the one four eight and the one three eight. I mean, sorry, one four eight and the one five eight. Um, much more modern. They're much more modern, and they look like a normal plane <laughs> of today. <laughs> cool. So to finish off, um, I have a quote here from one of um, Oleg Antonov's uh, close associates, a guy by the name of Shach Shachatuni. Probably got that wrong, um, but he said. The main thing that characterizes Oleg Antonov is his unconditional talent, exceptional love for his work, and of course, intelligence. These qualities in the first place determined his relationship with the team. Everyone who came to work with Oleg was immediately infected with his obsession. He was able to arrange people in such a way as to not push them into their work. Employees themselves became carriers of his aspirations and his ideas. So I feel like having him as such an important figure in not just um, Soviet-era Ukraine's history, but now modern-day Ukraine's history is also um, very, very important given how much he actually loved, genuinely loved um, his work in aviation. And what legacy it's left for uh, in terms of an industry for Ukraine to actually distinguish itself on the world stage. And the fact that Ukraine is one of the few countries to have a fully closed-off air assembly system. In the news this week, Ukraine's Verkhovna Rada has passed a bill that will ban plastic bags in the country from January 1st, 2022. The ban will apply to bags up to 50 microns thick and was supported by almost 300 deputies. 
The bill also proposes fines for businesses that sell plastic bags under the guise of biodegradable ones. It will also require manufacturers to label biodegradable bags in accordance with national standards. President Zelensky has introduced a bill to the Vahodnarada that will provide an official definition for the word oligarch. The bill was first mentioned during Zelensky's annual press conference a few weeks ago. Under the bill, a person is defined as an oligarch if they have significant influence in the economic and political life of the country and also control the main segments of the media sector. This law is designed to expire in 10 years and will be combined with other reforms to boost the Ukrainian economy. The Texas State Legislature has voted to recognize the Holodomor as an act of genocide. The resolution was passed with 142 votes in favor out of a chamber of 150. November 2021 will now be known as Ukrainian Genocide Month. In 2018, the US Senate unanimously recognized the Holodomor, becoming the first US body to do so. The Prime Ministers of Ukraine, Georgia and Moldova have signed a joint statement asking the EU to create a mechanism for the transfer of COVID-19 vaccines to their countries. They cite the EU's recent agreements with recent Balkan countries as an example to replicate. Ukraine, Georgia and Moldova are part of the EU's Eastern Partnership and all have association agreements with the bloc. All three countries are all seen as future members of the EU. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Join us next week for more UK Life Abroad content.